each and every one of you are here. If you're visiting here with us today, thanks for coming. We are so glad that you are here. That's not working, is it? Hi. How's that? Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. Um, It's been fantastic to be here already. I love being here with you on these Sunday mornings. It's just great to have our minds and hearts focused on Christ and on his word. Each and every Sunday morning, it just brings joy uh, to me to see you here, brings joy to be able to celebrate the gospel with you each and every Sunday. So grateful for that. If you are visiting here with us today, you should find a card just in the chair back in front of you. It's a card that you can fill out. Just let us know that you're here. If you would appreciate somebody from the office contacting you, we would love to be able to do that. We will not sell your information to anyone. We just wanted to let you know that that's an easy way uh, for us to connect with you if you would appreciate that. Also wanted to note that our men's retreat is coming up very soon, the end of this month, I guess it is, uh, 1st of March, and just wanted to make sure that our men are aware of that. A number of you have already signed up, and if you are interested, you can uh, find me or Jeff Kerr, one of the guys in the back, and we would be glad to get you some more information. Also wanted to let you know, for those of you, I was talking to a couple of guys uh, this morning, there is a hotel option for those of you in the great metropolis of Hazelhurst, Georgia. There's a couple of five stars. We've locked in some really great contract rates. Um, You're going to love it uh, there. So if anybody's interested, if sleeping outside and doing the whole cot or tent thing isn't really uh, your flavor, um, there's a hotel about 15 minutes away that you are welcome to to book, and I can uh, direct you to the right spot on that. Um, We would just love to, to make it possible for you to be there. And also wanted to share a little bit about what we're going to be doing. We typically have four sessions at our men's retreat, so just a time where we gather together around the campfire, and it's a, there's definitely content and teaching to it, but it's also very applicational, and so what we want to look at this year, uh, these will be our four sessions. Uh, One is men who are spiritually minded. We want to talk about uh, how do we, how do we lead well, uh, spiritually minded men in prayer, scripture, uh, things like that, to, to have our minds and, and, and thoughts uh, set on Christ, who is above. Men who fight for purity, which is a constant struggle in our world, especially today as we have such a, we're inundated by images and things that we don't want to see and put in front of ourselves all the time. How do we fight for purity in this culture and world? Men who love their wives as Christ loved the church, considering the model of marriage and what is it that Christ would call us as husbands to be and do? And then men, men who lead with integrity. Um, so those will be our four sessions that we'll look at, and we're just anticipating uh, just a really great time together. So if you'd like more information, you can find me or one of the guys in the back, and we would love to get you uh, the information on that. Well, we are in Luke chapter 8 this morning. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 21 this morning. And some of you may notice that this is going to be a little bit different from what we typically do in that we typically just take a section of scripture and then we take the very next section of scripture and that is sort of what we're doing today. But last time we were in Luke, which was two weeks ago, Adam Mercero preached last week from Hebrews 4, reminding us of the power and the sufficiency and authority of the word of God, which was a great message for us to consider and think about the seed that is sown as it relates to our parable. But two weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the soils, or also called the parable of the sower. And we saw that Jesus is going out and as he's ministering, his message is finding different soils. Some are rejecting it outright. The middle two soils, there's some level of growth and then the growth goes away for different reasons. And then the fourth soil is the good soil, that 
grows up and produces. So we spent a little bit of time on that, but we actually skipped over verses one through three. So what I wanna do today is I wanna go back and pick that up. Then we're gonna consider just a couple of final thoughts from the parable. And then we're gonna look at the next two sections because this is actually all tied together in one little, uh, one little bow, we could say, one little box. So we're, we've titled this Kingdom People, and we're looking at the nature of the people who were following Jesus, the nature of these followers, these first followers of Jesus. You know, the ministry of Jesus and the type of kingdom, and we'll talk a lot about the kingdom and this concept of kingdom as we move through the Gospel of Luke. He's already introduced us to this. The type of thing that Jesus is building, it wasn't simply a tack on to the way that they already lived. This wasn't a Jesus bumper sticker on the back of your value system that I already have. What Jesus was preaching is actually a completely radical new set of priorities, a new, th- a new thing that he's building. His message that he went to these villages and talked about in these cities wasn't just, you're pretty close, you're doing really well, let me help you out just a little bit. You just got one little missing ingredient. No, it wasn't like that. I know for many of you at your work environments, you probably have to do training, continuing education. You gotta get those C credits. You know, if you're in medical field, I'm sure you have to, and others as well. Uh, Financial work, I know many of you have to do continuing education. And sometimes, especially when you're maybe onboarding with a company, maybe they'll do some sort of a test and they'll just let you know, like you're strong in this area, you're weak in this area, and then they'll kind of cater their training to your particular weaknesses. And I think some people come to Christianity and they kind of treat it like that. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty good dude. I'm, I'm doing all right on my own. I think Jesus could just kind of help me round out a little bit my skill set. He could just kind of make me a little bit better person. That is not the gospel message and that's not the type of kingdom that Jesus is building. It's a radical new set of priorities and a radical new way to live. That's the message of the kingdom. And that's what we're gonna see this morning. Luke keeps reminding us that the kingdom that Jesus is building, it's an upside down sort of kingdom. It's a place where the last are first. It's a place where it's good to be poor. It's a place where it's good to mourn. It's a place where it's good to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. You're actually in a good position sometimes if for the sake of Christ you're marginalized in society. These all sound like very counterintuitive, counter-human types of ideas. But this is the kingdom, and we'll continue to see that as we move through this. So let's see these kingdom people. Who were they? What did they do? And what can we learn from them? I'll read this in sections as we walk through it. So this first section deals with these women who were the early supporters of Jesus. This is Luke chapter eight, verse one. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. We've talked about that a little bit already, of God. And the 12 were with him, that's 12 apostles, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, 
and many others who provided for them out of their means. This is really, really interesting because he gives us this list of women. Now, we, there's different studies that have been done on what was the public attitude towards women in the first century. And as you know, the 20th Amendment hadn't made a lot of headway at this point in life. That's the women's right to vote, suffrage movement. Hadn't made a lot of headway here. And for the most part, women were very marginalized in not just this culture, but in culture in general. And it's a little bit of a mixed bag in the early first century, just like throughout all time and culture, really. Was the culture largely misogynistic, sort of geared anti-woman? We have some evidence that there were certainly people who thought that way, but we have other evidence that maybe it wasn't quite that way. I found this quote helpful studying through this. Just taking the Bible on its own terms, which is what we'll largely do today. We won't pull in really any outside resources. Just taking the Bible on its own terms, we know that women owned their homes, had access to their own funds, appeared in synagogues and the Jerusalem temple, participated in political activities, and served as patrons of the early Jesus movement, or his early disciples, we could say. So it's a mixed bag, just like most cultures today. It's a mixed bag, what you're going to find. We know that some rabbis taught that a woman could not bring testimony in a public setting, public court, but we also know that some judges received testimony in the early courts. So, as I said, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. So we'll explore that a little bit more another day. What we want to do here is we want to look at the support that these particular women brought. And it's interesting because I think a lot of times we don't stop and consider how Jesus actually funded the ministry. Ministry takes money. And some of you who are visiting here today are like, oh, great. I just walked into that church. <laughs> you know, get, here's your basket on the way out the door. Um, it's, we're not that way, but it is important for us to stop and consider and think about this. I just found this really fascinating because Jesus, they, they funded his ministry. It says that they provided support for them out of their means, that is their monetary means. So couldn't God, God owns everything, right? Like couldn't he have just like, made money appear in their wallets, and you know, could, couldn't he have done something like that? We do have that one story from Matthew 17 where they catch the fish, and it's, they're solving another dispute in this, and they're like, hey, uh, just grab the coin out of his mouth and go pay your taxes. Now, it's tax season, and you know, some of you are maybe, after you read that story, you're going to go start looking for fishing rods and like, <laughs> let's give it a run. I've caught a few fish in my day, but I've never found any money in a fish. Um, found some other people's hooks. I found some line. I found some interesting things. I've never found money inside of a fish's mouth. So the apostles and Jesus, they didn't live that way. Um, they lived through what we would call just very ordinary means. Just normal humans worked normal jobs, and they supported them to buy food and to travel and we probably don't stop and think about the economics that would follow the messianic ministry. Somebody had to pay for this. And turns out it was funded, in part at least, by a bunch of women, which is just really interesting. Uh, maybe not something we've thought about and thought through before. Let's learn a little bit more about these ladies. Verse 2, And also 
some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. So then he's going to give us this list of ladies, presumably, who had been healed of these types of things. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So there's a group of these women who are supporters of Jesus. So let's look at them and let's see what we know about these individuals. We don't know a ton, all right, uh, but we do know a little bit, enough to, to, see, to learn some things here. So Mary called Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is how we often refer to her. There's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. So when you see Mary, obviously you have Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's probably where our first thoughts go. But there's other Marys as well. And these ladies had been, they were responding to the grace that had been given to them, the deliverance of being healed of infirmities and having these evil spirits cast out of them. We're coming off the heels, and I think this is significant. We're coming off the heels in chapter seven of Jesus' encounter with this woman who was most likely a prostitute, says she was known as a woman of sin, and she had come and she found Jesus at the Pharisees' table dining, and she came and she wet his, his feet with her tears, and she was so broken, and she leaves, and Jesus says she's forgiven, and she has much sin, but she's forgiven much. And so it comes on the heels of that. And then we have this other group of ladies here who have been forgiven and they've been delivered. So we need to recognize something here and make sure we get this right. What we're saying is that those who are forgiven much love much, as Jesus said. Those who are delivered, it's not as if Jesus arranged a, sort of a quid pro quo with them. You do this, I'm gonna do this for you, but then what you're gonna need to do, I'm gonna tap into your bank account. Um, in order for me to cast these seven demons out of you, Mary. It wasn't like that. What it was was she was delivered and said, what else would I do, Lord? What else would I do? And I think this is instructive for us as well. As we come to recognize our sin, we come to recognize who we are, we come to recognize what Jesus has done, what else would we do? What else would we live for? What else would we give our lives to? I think that's the emphasis. So let's talk about Mary Magdalene. It's likely, or at least commonly taught, that she came from the town of Magdala, therefore Mary Magdalene, in order to distance her from other Marys and distinguish her. Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. You'll see that. And they didn't do first name, last name, quite like we do it. But there's actually a little bit of new research coming out, which is interesting on this front. Uh, some people are saying that the town of Magdala didn't actually, it wasn't called Magdala until some years, and maybe even centuries after Jesus and Mary would have been there. This town was there, but not given that name until later. In this case, and I think this is quite possible, the, it's an honorific title that Jesus is giving her. And Magdalene, Magdala, it means honored or tower in the, in the idea is that she's an exalted one. She's an important one. And it, I think it's likely that Jesus is doing that. We don't know for sure, but it is likely that that's what's going on. She's a big part of the ministry. We see that she's here at the beginning. 
And she's also gonna be one of the ones that's there at the end. We have a number of women. They become the testimony, the ones who testify. And as I mentioned a little while ago, uh, some, some at least would not accept the testimony of women. And so it's really interesting. The gospel writers and kind of one of the sort of stamps of authenticity on the gospels is that it does affirm that it was these women that found that the grave was empty. And so at the end of the story, after the resurrection, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So these women are following behind. This is after the crucifixion. He's being buried. They know where the tomb is and they're making plans to come back because next day is the Sabbath. They can't anoint the body yet, but they're gonna come back. And then they do. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, names that you recognize from here, at least Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the mother of James and the other women with them who had told these things to the apostles. So we see that they are become a major part of what Jesus is doing. They're funding the ministry. So that's Mary Magdalene. Let's look at Joanna. She's an interesting one as well, though we don't know a lot about her either. Verse three, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. So she apparently was somebody of some importance. She's there at the end again, just like Mary Magdalene is. And I wish, some of these I do wish we had a little bit more detail as to who these people were. And these were names like Susanna, we don't know really anything about. But we know that they were significant people. And so she must be a woman of means. She, after all, is the household manager of Herod's house, which is irony of irony, right? Uh, Herod and Jesus, that they would lock up a little bit later in the story. So she's part of this. She's part of the aristocracy. And so there's a certain humility it would have taken for her to step out of her social world into the social world of this itinerant teacher wandering around, listening to the teachings of Jesus. It's a pretty amazing turn of events that we have here. So you have somebody of Herod's household, a manager in his household, becomes a Jesus follower. It reminds us that the gospel is not simply for the down and out, Jesus often ministers to the poor. He often finds himself with those who are marginalized and pushed to the side. But there's also some people who came from a totally different class. And isn't that the beauty of the gospel and of the church? It really cuts across, completely cuts across any socioeconomic barriers. We're all level, equal at the cross. It's pretty amazing. Then you have Susanna. And it says many others were not told anything about these people really other than their names. And that probably would have been recognized uh, by the people in the first century who these people were. I want to talk for just a moment about what this means and what we can learn from this. You know, things haven't really changed. It's, it's still God's people who support the ministry. I am very privileged to be able to do what I do because you do what you do. I've joked with you before that if you all quit your jobs and you all go into ministry, nobody needs that because then I gotta go get a real job. Like nobody, nobody needs that around here. It still works this way. Um, and I'm, I'm just so encouraged by this local church, this particular local church, uh, in that it's able to support me 
and Leslie full-time and David full-time and Dalton now is it? Yeah, I appreciate that, Dalton. Uh, Dalton, who read scripture for us, he's on board now as a ministry intern uh, here with us. And it's just encouraging to see. And I feel maybe a little bit of what Paul felt in Philippians 4. It's not the gift so much, although it's necessary. Paul accept, sometimes accepts gifts, sometimes he doesn't, which is an interesting study with the Apostle Paul. But it's, it is the gift that's necessary, but it's also that you care enough about the ministry of the word of God and the church to give. Um, and that's what I think is really, really encouraging. This is how the Lord does his ministry. A friend of mine from California recently told me, he told me about a man who owns, he owns a house out there, which is a nice house, and he allows seminary students, the seminary that I went to, allows seminary students to live there completely free while they're in seminary, which is a big deal in Los Angeles. And so he allows them to live there, and he said uh, his only condition is that he would like for them to be a part of the prison ministry that the local church does. He's like, that's it. So if you'll do that, you know, you can stay for free as long as you're studying. And I, I think about that, and I think about verses like 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So there's a caution, but then it says this, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And this is what these women embody. They have means, and they are willing to support the Messianic ministry. We all, every one of us who are hearing the message of Jesus today, we are indebted at some real level here to Mary Magdalene, Susanna, Joanna, and the many others. We're indebted to them at some level because they were the ones who supported the ministry. Now, you can hit me with the sovereignty of God stuff. You know, if they hadn't stepped up, well, somebody else had. I know, I know, right? Like God could have written it on the sky if he wanted. The rocks will cry out. I get it. Like, but in a very real sense, like he uses normal people to do his work. And that's just very encouraging, I think, for us. All right, let's move on. Kingdom people, what are they like? Well, they support. They support next. They bear fruit. They bear fruit now, this is the parable, and as I mentioned, we talked about this parable a couple of weeks ago, so I won't go back through the whole thing. But what we have is the parable that tells us that there's going to be different responses to the gospel message. There's four soils that we see. Jesus tells this parable, parable, simple definition. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. There's a very normal story that Jesus will grab, and then he's teaching a spiritual principle through that. He says, as the sower goes out and he's sowing his seed, you're going to encounter four different soils. The hard soil, it doesn't go anywhere. You're gonna, people are going to hear the message, and they're not going to do a thing with it. They're going to walk out and say, what's for lunch? The next soil, it's a shallow soil. It might look initially healthy and good. This plant pops up, but then adversity comes, and it's like, the, like the, the plant that's growing in a little crevice of a rock. It's very shallow. The roots can't get deep, and eventually the wind's going to come, a storm, it's going to blow it over. Or the weedy soil. The weedy soil, it grows, and it's growing well, but there's all these other th 
competitors around that are vying for the same resources. And eventually, the weeds grow faster and they choke out the good plant. And then we have the good soil. And Jesus gives lessons on that. Christians should be people who are fruitful, bearing fruit. It's probably been a little while since most of us were in math class. But do you remember maybe in grade school or maybe your high school days, maybe college for some of us, you had one of those big, long equations. And for some of us, they might as well have written that in Latin. Um, You just start looking at all, there's just a bunch of symbols and cosines and this and that. And for me, I'm not naturally a math person, at least not higher math like that, you kind of learn the steps and you learn to kind of muddle your way through a really long problem like that. And then you get to the end of the exercise and you check your answer with the back. Did anybody else have that moment where you're like, I got it right. Like, it's like total shock that like, wow, my answers match. And I think some people sort of feel that way about Christians. It's like, oh, there's actually fruit growing. Like, well, no, that should be normal. Like, that should be the norm for Christians is it shouldn't be the exception. It shouldn't be, the, it should be a regular occurrence. You should be fruitful. We should be growing. Peter grabs on to this and he gives instruction. He says, the problem of unfruitfulness in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, I won't read it all, but he says, if you, if you have these qualities, if you're adding these qualities, it will keep you from being unfruitful. Then I'll summarize his thoughts here. Basically, there's one of two issues if there's no fruit coming out. One, you've forgotten the gospel, you've forgotten your purification from sins, as Peter says it. Or two, you need to make sure it's calling and choosing of you. You need to make sure that you're actually converted, saved, redeemed. It's one of those two issues. So, Fruitfulness should be regular, normal, not abnormal for Christians. So kingdom people, we see these kingdom people, they support the messianic ministry. Kingdom people, they hear the word of God and they bear fruit. And then this next one is very connected. These kingdom people receive the word of God. Now notice what happens here. He transitions from this parable And he gives another illustration about a lamp. Verse 16. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed. He puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Now, what is Jesus' point here? This might be a familiar image, the light on the stand. And I think most of us, when you hear that, your first inclination is to think that you are the light, right? That's actually not what he's saying here. What he's saying is that Jesus is the light and you need to receive the light. He does, in fairness to those of us who probably defaulted to, I'm supposed to be a light. He does say this over in Matthew 5, but it's a little different context there. He does say, let your light shine before men, but that's not what he's saying here. The context is receiving the word. So what's he saying? 
Jesus is the light. I am the light of the world. He's bringing light into the darkness. He can't hide this light just like you can't hide a lamp. It doesn't make any sense. Nobody lights a lamp and then covers it with a jar. That doesn't make any sense. Now, we're talking lamp. There would have been little, uh, little oil lamps, most likely. Looks like, a little, uh, looks like a little clay, like toy boat kind of thing. Um, had some oil in it, maybe a wick, and you would light that, and that was the lamp. Um, pre-electricity, didn't have any LED bulbs. Uh, it didn't work that way. So you would light the lamp, and just imagine you come home at night, and you need some light to cook dinner or clean up or whatever it is that you're doing, and you light a lamp, and then you stick it underneath the bed. And Jesus is saying that's ridiculous. One, you can't see the light, and two, you're probably going to catch the bed on fire. Just bad plan all the way around. So you can't do that. I, he's come as the Messiah, and he's come, and he can't hide. He must be the sower. He must spread the seed. It must go out. You can't hide who Jesus is and what he's doing. And eventually, everybody's going to know. It's going to expose everyone. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You might think you're hiding now. That's the point of verse 17. Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. Everybody's going to know. Darkness and light cannot coexist. When you have light, it's no longer darkness. And so that's what Jesus is saying. The light is going to go out, and it will expose the darkness. Now, many of you have toddlers in the house, and toddlers never tire of playing hide-and-go-seek. They, they just love it. It's like the universal game, um, hide-and-go-seek. But the most fun is when toddlers think they're hiding and they're not actually hiding very well. I think, the, here's a few images, something like this. We've, we've probably all, we've all been there before. Um, I think my favorite is a clear box in the middle. This kid's like, I got him this time. And it's like, uh, that's not actually working. Uh, you, can, you can get lost in a rabbit hole if you need a minute. Uh, some laughs this afternoon. There's hundreds of these on the internet. Um, these are not my images. But we've all been there with toddlers before where they think they're hiding and they're actually not hiding anything. I think it's somewhat like that. You hear the word of God and you know there's something in your soul that needs to respond to the Lord. There's some area of your life that the Lord's chiseling away at and you're like, eh, I'm going to push that away. And nobody on the outside knows. You think you're like this. You think, hey, they'll never find me in this box. Like, it, think again. Think again. It will be exposed. You are, you are living in complete openness before the Lord. Now, I, I may not know. You might be able to fool your friends and family and kids and whoever else, your coworkers. I, sure, you might get away with that. But at the ultimate level, I think what Jesus is saying is that Look out, look out, be careful then how you receive the word. That's where he goes to. Verse 18, it's gonna come to light, so take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given and from the one who has not. Even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Be careful, 
Be careful responding to the word of God, to the gospel message. David actually, in our call to worship, read a cross-reference. I didn't know he was gonna read this verse this morning from Isaiah 55 and verse six. In the Bible, you have this teaching that some, some people maybe go too far and their day for responding to God and his truth and the word might just come to an end. It's in the Bible. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is here near. What's the implication of that? There's a day when maybe he won't be found. Don't think you can just magically change soils, right? Yeah, I, maybe I've been a little hard, um, but eventually I'll just become the good soil. You, are you? How are you gonna do that? Be careful how you receive the word. Take care how you hear. Other places, this is actually quite a few places. I'll just show you a couple. Proverbs 1, this is talking about wisdom. The whole book of Proverbs is about how to gain wisdom. He says, those who just reject wisdom, wisdom's calling out. Wisdom wants your attention. There's two ladies in Proverbs that both want your attention. And it's written specifically to the young one that's gonna choose one path or the other. There's the way Lady Wisdom, who's calling out, hey, follow me. And there's Dame Folly, we could call her, who's calling out from the other side saying, no, pursue your pleasures. You don't need wisdom. You can do that later. And so Proverbs lets us know right up front, be careful, be careful because one day you're gonna wake up and realize I should get some of that wisdom. Things are really bad right now. And wisdom might not be there for you. Because I've called you and you refuse to listen. I've stretched out my hand and no one is heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. That is a scary verse. Romans, Paul says something very similar, similar concept at least. Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they knew, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Just before this, it says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, here's the real problem with suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. You, you actually might succeed in suppressing the truth for a season at least until God exposes all things. The end result of this, I don't have these verses for you, but three different times, verse 24, 26, and 28, Paul says, therefore God gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. You want that? You want your sin? You wanna reject God and his word? Okay, fine. And now you can only reject God and his word. Take care then how you hear. Careful how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. From the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, it's gonna be taken away. This practically, you know how this works. If you don't use certain muscles, they atrophy over time. Your knowledge of certain things recedes over time. Like when I was talking about math a minute ago and I start talking about things like sine and cosine. Um, some of you are like, are we talking about documents? Like I, I get sine, but no, it's a different thing. I couldn't do those problems now. 
your knowledge recedes, your skills diminish. This, be careful. Be careful how you receive the word. Lastly, kingdom people. They support the work of the ministry. These women supported the early messianic ministry. They bear fruit. They are fruitful, not fruitless. They are people who are attentive and careful when they hear the word of God, taught, read, when they hear the message of Jesus. And then lastly, they belong. They belong in the family of God. Look at verse 19. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. (laughs) But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, this is so fascinating. It's just a completely fascinating section of scripture. Um, I don't know exactly what things are like in your home um, with your mother, but I don't know that this would have gone over well if my mom came to see me somewhere and they said, hey, your mom's here. Well, yeah, I'll tell you who's my real mom. <laughs> like, I, I don't know how that would have, like lunch would have gone that afternoon. Um, it's really interesting that Jesus grabs this and he grabs just what was popularly understood that family's everything, especially in this uh, a Middle Eastern culture in Palestinian land in the early first century. Family was everything. And Jesus is taking that common assumption and he's gonna, he's gonna say, we, we need to think differently even about family. Kingdom people do. Now he's not anti-family, which I'll show you in just a moment, but he is causing us to stop and think. I think we forget sometimes that Jesus had a family. I, could you imagine? I, I try to put myself in the, in the shoes of the, of the writers of the Bible and what was it like? He did have a family, Mark 6, 3. Is not this the carpenter? This is when Jesus, they're coming to understand his messianic ministry. He's, who is this guy? He's the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. So we know at least four brothers here and are not his sisters here with us as well. We don't know how many sisters, but Jesus had brothers and sisters. A big family, by the way. I couldn't imagine what it's like growing up in that house. Uh, and they took offense at him. Um, and we learned that his brothers took offense at him. They didn't believe early on. They didn't believe. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. So Jesus had been doing miracles, and they said, hey, you need to go to the feast, and you need to go show off your skills, your power, so that they can believe. And John adds this note, for not even his brothers believed in him, at least not yet. This progresses, though, and they do come to believe. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 5 The family later believes. Paul is instructing the Corinthian church, we do not have the right to take along, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter. So interesting little footnote here. Paul is making the case that he's talking about as an apostle, I have the right to make a living off of this ministry. I have a right to have a wife, even though Paul himself was single. And he said, but we could, We're not restricted from having a believing wife. By the way, this is one of those verses where we would say as Christians that 
Christians need to marry Christians. I know a number of missionary dating and missionary marriage stories, um, and some of those have turned out wonderfully, but I would say they're not free, the opposite of this verse, to marry someone who is not a confessing believer in Jesus Christ. I believe that's what Paul is saying. So the brothers at this point are considered part of the believing community. Jesus was concerned for his earthly family. Particularly, he's concerned about his mom on the cross at the crucifixion. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. And church history tells us that John, this, uh, John the evangelist, not John the Baptist, John the evangelist, he took her in, and later, it, it seems that church history tells us they moved to Ephesus, which is where uh, John would end up for a while until he's exiled to Patmos and then likely went back uh, to Ephesus. So Jesus was concerned for his earthly family, but he also understood a larger principle. The gospel might just divide in the context of a family. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Of course, this isn't universally true. He just is saying it might happen. There are two sets of brothers as apostles. So he's obviously not saying everybody's going to be fighting with their brother or sister over the identity of Jesus. What he's saying is that it very well could. It very well could and then last cross-reference on this, Jesus also accented in other places the priority of the spiritual family. And he said these things. A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts from which you nursed. So, hey, your mother is so blessed. Jesus, interestingly, says, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. We'll come to this a little bit later. So there's a priority on the spiritual family, those who believe. I've been so encouraged as we talk about this concept of spiritual family. I've been so encouraged again here at this church just to watch this take place, to watch meals get taken to people who need them, to watch bills get paid, to watch people be welcomed in, errands run, just all sorts of things. It's one of the privileges I tell people all the time, one of the privileges I have being in my seat is I probably get to be a little more aware of a lot of that than maybe some of you are, which is probably how it should be because people are doing things not to be seen. They're just doing it to serve and to help. It's such a beautiful thing when the church family operates in this way, caring for one another like family. I told you the story before about a Haitian pastor that we were able to help. It was after the 2010 earthquake, and we, we were able to help, uh, help them with some needs that they had right after the earthquake and the devastation. And he was able to come visit in the States a couple of years later, and he, we, we had never met in person. We had only emailed back and forth, and he comes, he comes walking into the hall at the church I was at at the time, and he just smiles really big, puts his arms out, and he says, Pastor Allen, can I give you a hug? And I said, I'm a real hugger, right? I said, absolutely. And there was just a, there's just a, 
a sweetness of fellowship that you get to enjoy with people who believe that Jesus is Messiah and wanna give their lives to him. There's just a sweetness of fellowship there and there's nothing like it. Uh, there's nothing like it in the world and we're just grateful for that. So just to be clear, the application of this is not go blow up your family, all right? If you heard that, you heard me wrong. The application is lean into and be grateful for the faith family. And when those coincide, and your faith family is also the family who loves the Lord, then all the more better. There's an emphasis still in the New Testament on family, the caring for widows is a family responsibility, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5. Paul says also in that same passage, if you don't care for your, provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So there, there's still definitely in society a connection with the family, but there's also this new family that you get to be a part of as well. So what do we do with this? A few things, some takeaways for you to think about this week. One, I think we should all stop and consider our support of kingdom work. As I said, I'm just continually encouraged by the work of the ministry here. But that's really a question between you and the Lord. 1 Corinthians 9, let each one give as he's purposed in his heart to give. 1 Corinthians 9. I would just put that back in front of you. Examine your fruitfulness. I think this parable in particular and the cross-reference we looked at in 2 Peter 1 encourages us to ask the question, if there's no fruit being evidenced, why is that? What, what's gone wrong? Something has gone wrong. We need to deal with that. Next, we looked at this section on the lamp. Don't ignore the word. Whatever that is in your heart and soul, don't ignore that. Keep a clean conscience before the Lord. And then lastly, as we just mentioned, prioritize the faith family. Uh, there's something wonderful and beautiful about Christians being together. It's a privilege that we get to have that. Spurgeon once said, if you find the perfect church, many of you know the quote, don't join it. It will no longer be perfect. So just want to be clear this morning. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we're a perfect church. We're not by any stretch. What I am saying is that I am very encouraged by so much that I see, so much fruitfulness that I see. And I think it's it's something to rejoice in and it's something to give thanks to the Lord about. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the faith family that you have built here, for people that love your word, for people that expect somebody like me and my role here to speak the word, to say it, to deal sometimes with hard things, things that confront us in our sin, things that confront our idols of our own hearts. Lord, we're grateful. Lord, I pray for others in here. Maybe, maybe you've been working on them in some particular, some particular thing, maybe in their own heart and life. I pray that they would not be the ones who see the lamp and try to hide it, but that they would be careful to receive the word. Lord, for others, maybe they've never responded initially in faith and repentance, in salvation, to trust in Jesus as their savior we pray that you would show them their need for Christ today. We pray that they would call upon the name of the Lord while he may be found, even today. Uh, Lord, use your word, we pray in Christ's name, amen.